0: I would have probably just abandoned the church anyways at large had I not had a practice to sort of keep me, keep the roots there, keep watering the roots and to recognize and to to let go of the, you know, the falsehoods of of religion, but hold on to what's good and right and true. I really like Ken Wilber's a big influence and Mm. his model of transcend and include. So we transcend our small ways of thinking our limited world views and yet we include the good that's in them. Um, that's really important to me. And so I feel like I've been able to include the good that's a part of the church or the evangelical church um, or various traditions within it, but transcend it, but also include the good.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 25 of Contemplate This. I am your host, Tom Bushlack, and this interview is with Keith Christich. There are two things I really love about this interview. First, Keith discovered meditation by accident. Of course, nothing like this happens by accident, but he started his journey just by being naturally drawn into periods of silence after listening to music. Once he realized what was happening and what he was doing, he first started to explore Buddhist teachings, and only after a little while did he realize that These practices are also part of the Christian tradition in which he grew up, and then he found his way into a more formal practice like centering prayer. Second, he is a millennial who's taking up the mantle of contemplative practice and is sharing it with others through his website, retreats, in-person and online meditation groups, Enneagram coaching, and other creative pursuits. And here's how he puts it in his own words. He says, quote, My ultimate aim is to help people slow down and reconnect with their deepest and truest self, end quote. I think you'll find some good stuff in this episode for slowing down, reconnecting, and connecting with Keith and his experience. You can find links to Keith's website and social media outlets, info about the Shalame Institute, of which he is a graduate, a couple of the Enneagram books that we discussed, one by Rizzo Hudson and another one by Chris hewitts All of this and more on the show notes page at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode 25. That's the word episode 25 with no spaces. Also excited to let you know that we're getting closer to releasing a new website at centeringforwisdom.com. Tentative release date of May 1st, 2020. If you go there now before May 1st or after, you can sign up for our email list and download a free ebook on how to start practicing Centering for Wisdom, along with a bonus guided meditation. As always, I'm extremely grateful to those of you who have written reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream Contemplate This, and an extra shout out to those who have made free will contributions to offset the cost of producing the show. If you haven't done either of those things yet, please take a minute to leave a review. Written comments are the best, or to make a donation as you are able. You can make a donation using DonorBox or Patreon, uh, both of which are completely secure, right at the bottom of the show notes page at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode 25. All right, with that intro, let's get into my interview with Keith Kristich. Welcome everybody to Contemplate This. I am here with Keith Kristich. Thanks for being on the show. Good to have you.
0: Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here.
1: Yeah. So do you want to start by just telling people a little bit about who you are and where you are and what you do in the world?
0: Sure. Yeah. I um, am here in Buffalo, New York, where we are snow free right now, which is a beautiful thing. And, um, yeah, at this point, full-time working with people and teaching contemplative prayer, centering prayer, various meditation practices, and as a certified Enneagram teacher as well, working one-on-one with people in retreat settings and um, now virtually over Zoom um, (laughs) in in these wild days that we're in. Um, So really just helping people slow down and reconnect with their deepest self and, and God who is, you know, deeply within us, so... Cool, so
1: how did you get involved in that space? I think everybody has a unique story about being pulled in that direction
0: yeah, sure i I grew up in the church in a very evangelical world and had a fairly um a healthy relationship with the church and healthy relationship with religion in general um, and it landed me ten years back to in an, an evangelical college in New York State, Houghton College and I kind of fell into meditation by accident. Um, I would be sort of listening to music, letting music sort of the sound sort of like do the praying for me. And I found that after the music sort of faded and went silent, I was in this um, somewhat different state of mind than my normal everyday consciousness. And so the only thing I could think is, I think this is meditation. I think I'm meditating, I'm not too sure. And at that time, um, 10 years ago or so I thought meditation equaled Buddhism. And mm-hmm. so I went to the library and got out some books on Buddhism, which was a great help because Buddhists kind of know what they're doing when it comes to the meditation world. Um, but yeah, it sort of all kind of came about by accident that it just sort of was something that was not planned. It wasn't like, I want to take on a meditation practice. It was something that certainly found me. So.
1: Mm. Wow. So, uh, I'm fascinated by that connection with music and we can maybe come back and explore that at some point, kind of putting, putting into a different state of mind. So if it sounds like, did you kind of dive into Buddhism for a while? And then how did you make that connection to, Oh, this is like part of my own tradition?
0: Yeah. 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 Great question. I did. Um, yeah. Mostly it was through books at the beginning and really only um, studying that Buddhism for just a couple of months because Shortly after this experience, I had friends invite me to a Franciscan friary um, called Mount Irenaeus in New York State. It's beautiful, 400 acres of land. The buildings are built from the wood of the land, and there's four beautiful brothers that live there managing this contemplative retreat center, and and it was there that I would go to Mass every Sunday, and they would talk about this, the contemplative tradition. They would talk about contemplative prayer, and Father Bob would always talk about centering prayer, and during his open, he would have an open homily, um, So we could all speak during his, during the mass. And he would always give instructions on centering prayer every mass. And so it was there that all of a sudden I was like, oh, this, you know, they're talking about St. Teresa of Avila and Meister Eckhart and talking about meditation and contemplation. And these just weren't words that were accessible to me as an evangelical. Um, And, you know, our kind of faith starts 150, 1500 years after the beginning of it all so we miss out on so much of the contemplative tradition so it was there that it was just like oh yeah there's actually a path built into the christian faith that includes a meditative path and and a journey inwards that i thought i was finding in a a subtle way in, in buddhism but it didn't quite hit the spiritual heart um of the like watering the roots of my tradition so
1: yeah so you connected with some wild Franciscans, which I love. I grew up with, on the edge of a, a small forest that was owned by a Franciscan retreat center, and my first job was washing dishes
0: after uh, they had
1: dinner. <laughs>
0: yes, and I I did a lot of dishwashing. I was able to live there for nine weeks after I graduated from college, and I I was washing dishes every night. So
1: cool. <laughs> So you had some Franciscan mentorship there, introduced the language. Where did that lead you then? Was it, was there a teacher that you started working with? Was it more reading? How Where did that path weave?
0: Yeah, well that, that, yeah, it did, it did lead me to, to live there for nine weeks, which was sort of a, a homing, a, a way to sort of like create some roots to create some structure to having morning prayer and meditation, having an afternoon mass and having an evening prayer um, and sort of built that sort of contemplative lifestyle. Even if it was just over two months, um, it sort of like fed me in a way that, you know, other things weren't. And so then it was leaving the the, the beauty of 400 acres of land and going into the city of Buffalo where I live now and working with um, youth and a lot of a beautiful refugee population that's in Buffalo. And so it was sort of on my own as a a young person out of college with this deep desire for intimacy with with God or the divine and wanting to meditate and do centering prayer. And so it was a lot of reading and probably for a long time it was more reading than meditation, Mm -hmm. um, which is always (laughs) a mistake or something I try to steer people away from when they start.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, for myself too, I think that resonates with my own experience and uh, in some ways it's, it's a little easier to be in the intellect for a while, but Mm -hmm. if you do the practice, it starts to, it doesn't get rid of the intellect. It just draws you into a wider space in which that rational mind functions Mm -hmm. in my experience.
0: Yeah. It's uh, that, that was it. Um, Saint Theophan the Recluse, who says, "Descend the mind into the heart."
1: Oh yeah, I've heard that line. Cynthia Berjolt quotes it yeah. frequently. I, I think no. it's in the Philokalia mm-hmm. and that might be the original source of it. Yeah, Matthew Wright yeah. likes to talk about that as well.
0: Yeah, certainly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and the, and yeah, Matthew's been a great. Uh, well, you live pretty close time. to him, don't you? He's in the Hudson Valley in New York, so it's a good five hours. But oh,
1: okay, my bad. I thought it was closer than yeah. that. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, but Cynthia as well, Cynthia Bregeau has been huge, so sort of Thomas Keating at the beginning um, of the Centering Prayer journey and just reading through his material and then um, ended up starting a, a Centering Prayer group, group kind of out of nowhere gathering six friends and said, do you want to try this thing with me? And I was very much mixing Centering Prayer and uh, Christian meditation. as Oh, not by mantra generally. form for those, Yeah. yeah. I was like, oh, yeah. they're kind of the same thing and now and now I recognize kind of different traditions and um yeah. So but that group still goes on to this day, which is great.
1: That's cool. So I'm curious, as an evangelical, you mentioned that the the language of contemplation was perhaps a little new. Was was there was there any kind of inner like dissonance that occurred in that process? Was it unsettling? Did you get pushback from say people in your home tradition or home church? Um, And I don't want to stereotype, but I think sometimes that people can experience that.
0: Yeah, certainly. I I wouldn't say it was anything major. I think by nature of being introvert, um, I'd share less than others would. Mm. Uh, Maybe that's partially the nature of just the contemplative orientation as well. So I remember finding it and and sort of just like holding on to it myself. And because it was sort of a mystery to me at the time, um, I I would talk to friends about it. um, And I think it was just sort of like speaking different languages um, because it's like, I mean, (laughs) it's just a very different orientation. Right. um, I remember talking even with family, I remember talking to my father and I was like, so, so I meditate now. And he's like, Oh, so you're a Buddhist. And I was like, (laughs) Not, no, but not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> um, but it, again, it's just that sort of assumption that um, as soon as we're talking about these type of things and therefore we're outside of the Christian tradition, when in, in reality it belongs so much to the heart of it, it's I, in my opinion, the thing that holds, the glue that holds it all together. And so, um, yeah, I wouldn't say it was anything major like people were pushing me away or I was thrown out or, you know cast to the side but it was i think it's just more of the the loneliness of of doing doing the practice doing the reading speaking the language and doing that alone and i mm. think eventually that's just sort of a slow walking out of the evangelical church as a whole in a sense so
1: so did that become a more formal decision to step away at some point just based on what you just said
0: yeah, I, uh, formal. I mean, I think it was just a slow... Or informal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty informal. I mean, okay. eventually stopped going to evangelical churches in my city um, and would go to more mainline churches, more progressive, more um, liberal, more open and inclusive of, of different people. And so, um, yeah, loosening that. And, and now I find myself, my partner and I, my wife, we find ourselves at a Quaker meeting. Um, which mm. still practices that hour of, of silence and people stand and speak and share as the spirit moves. Um, and that's a very open space and one that is truly contemplative and, and grounded into into the spirit within us. So it's not just me and my ego talking when someone stands to speak. Um, yeah. So that's really yeah, cool. Quakers are good people.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've a known group. a few myself. I've actually yeah. never been to a Quaker meeting, but it would be interesting mm-hmm. at some point. So another thing I'm curious about um, for people who discovered this early and had a practice in that transitional period of college into young adulthood and kind of getting your feet on the ground, did, do you feel like that your practice was grounding or kind of helped you through that period in, in any helpful ways?
0: Yeah, I think it's the only thing that got me through <laughs> it. <laughs> um, I think I think being thrown from an evangelical school that teaches you a pretty narrow lens and, and viewpoint on the world into being thrown into a city where just like surrounded by all kinds of people, all different religions, like within a mile radius of my house, there's multiple Buddhist temples, there's a Jehovah Witness church, there is multiple mosques, there are, um, you know, there's just like everything exists in my city, right in my neighborhood, and so you're just thrown into um, a world that's very different than what what you're trained or conditioned to think as an evangelical. And I think I would have probably just abandoned the church anyways at large had I not had a practice to sort of keep me keep the roots there, keep watering the roots, and to recognize and to, and to let go of the you know the falsehoods of of religion, but hold on to what's good and right and true. I really like Ken Wilber's a big influence and Mm. his model of transcend and include. So we transcend our small ways of thinking our limited world views. And yet we include the good that's in them. Um, That's really important to me. And so I feel like I've been able to include the good. That's a part of the church or the evangelical church um, or various traditions within it, but transcend it, but also include the good.
1: Yeah. I'm sort of fascinated by the way in which the contemplative tradition can speak to, The experience that a lot of people have who grew up and in any kind of church tradition who then get to a point of of maybe feeling like some of those external forms don't fit anymore feel a little constraining and a desire to let that go and the contemplative experience and practice i think provides a a broader context to feel like i'm not it's not that i'm losing my faith it's not that i'm like destroying this Mm -hmm. but it's that i'm becoming less attached to the external forms that when I was younger, I thought that was it, right? I thought yeah. that was the whole point. Mm-hmm. But now I see there's a deeper point. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds like your own experience sort of mirrors that in some helpful yeah. ways.
0: Yeah, certainly. I, I remember years back, I did some training with the Shalem Institute for Spiritual Formation and leading contemplative prayer groups and retreats. And I remember being there at one of the residencies and, and sort of the the question emerged and says, asking myself and I had to raise it to the group, but the question was, am I a Christian that happens to be a contemplative or am I a contemplative that happens to be Christian? And that for me, I think I, think I move more and more to the fact that at the essence of it, I am a contemplative and I just happen to express that contemplative orientation through the, through the systems that I was born into. And so the essence of my faith is a contemplative orientation towards the world, towards God. And and the way that that manifests or materializes is through Christian, just like a Sufi is a contemplative. And they just happen to be a Sufi Muslim.
1: Mm. So
0: I think that was a switch that sort of also took place over the last couple of years. And um, that it's not like I'm a Christian and my version of Christianity is contemplative. It's like, no, fundamentally contemplative. And so the practice is the only thing that allows me to to keep within the church in that tradition.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a really, um, uh, it's one of the best ways I've heard that described, I guess, um, in telling your story. And I think a lot of people find that helpful mm-hmm. way to approach it. So you made your way into Shalem at some point. Do you want to kind of walk us through that experience?
0: Sure, yeah, I...
1: Or if you well, want to fill in what you did before that, that's fine, too.
0: <laughs> sure. I mean, well, <laughs> I mean, before that, it was just a lot of stumbling through books and probably YouTube um, and listening to yeah, different lectures and that. But I think years of just stumbling through practice and um, trying to get regular with Centering Prayer, reading books about Centering Prayer or meditation, and eventually was able to pull this group together of, of six friends to do a test run and sort of, um, doing that group was like super beautiful. I love the leadership of it. I love planning for it, facilitating the meetings, helping people close their eyes, turn away from the external world and um, just saw the richness and eventually thought I need more of this more training to do this more with more people in different formats. And so I remember googling contemplative leadership, which is probably one of the, not often Googled, but, um,
1: (laughs) maybe increasingly so, but yeah.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and so I did come across the Shalem Institute and took a a six week online course, which was, uh, very good at the time. And then that six week online course was specifically on bringing contemplative awareness and leadership inside of sort of any sort of leadership mindset Mm -hmm. and, um, ended up taking their 18 month program, um, to lead contemplative prayer groups and retreats. And that was. That was just a beautiful experience of lots of reading, lots of study, lots of practice, many, many different kinds of contemplative and meditative practices that we were committed to do every day um, in community, connecting with people online, going to Washington, D.C. for eight days, two different times. And so that was really just an 18 months of just like diversifying my my small practice of centering prayer of like, what does it look like to use to take on many different tools. Yeah. Um, to dig this big deep well towards the water of life with many different tools. Wow.
1: Yeah. Now, if I'm remembering correctly, is there kind of a final project that you have to do in that program?
0: Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So then I had led a six-week um, contemplative prayer group so at, a, at a local Presbyterian church and that was beautiful. Yeah, (laughs) I still use that some of that same material. I I continue to do um, when when people are healthy and able to go outdoors. I lead various contemplative prayer groups seasonally with different churches and such, and so um, still use that model. Shalem offers a beautiful model of how to offer retreat into specific formats and settings, and Mm.
1: um,
0: yeah, great training. So
1: yeah, cool. So you mentioned you mentioned it briefly earlier and it's on your website, but at some point you got exposed to the Enneagram as well. So I'm curious how that, that piece came into it.
0: Yeah. Let's think. Uh,
1: <laughs> it all just kind of happens. Right. And then somebody right, yeah. comes along and asks you to explain it.
0: <laughs> there it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well that was back. Um, my wife and I were um, helped start an intentional community with nine people in the city that we live. And so we were able to buy this big house and get a bunch of chickens and raise, um, build a bunch of raised beds and bees and live with a bunch of people um, for four years. And uh, eventually, my early on in that experience, this would have been six years or so ago, my spiritual director at the time, she had given me a book on the Enneagram. And we were sort of working with that inside of spiritual direction, which was a great joy because I was able to bring use the Enneagram in a spiritual context immediately. Um, And then I brought the book to our intentional community on sort of a business retreat weekend. And we just did a lot of Enneagramming for that weekend (laughs) and then used that as a tool of relationship with one another. um, Helping realize that people aren't worse versions than ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) They're actually different and the differences are good.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's cool. I think it is fun to work with that in a group context too. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's good for personal insight, but it's also really great for relationships, especially if you're in that kind of intense community. Mm -hmm. What was the book that she introduced you to? The
0: the Wisdom of the Enneagram. The The Rizzo Rizzo Hudson
1: Hudson book. book. Okay. Okay. Um, Okay. So, oh, go ahead.
0: Oh, I'll just say that's still sort of like the baseline Bible book I use as an introductory.
1: Um, Yeah. I've referred many many. people to that book too. (laughs) And my introduction was very similar. It was at the spiritual director. Uh, and similar so your typology
0: I am dominant type 9 okay the uh, strong one-wing and um, sexual self-preservation social
1: okay so you yeah you've drilled deep do you want to explain what that means to people not familiar with the Enneagram
0: (laughs) can I ask you quick first about yes (laughs) Uh,
1: I'm uh, predominantly one Okay. Um, probably with a, probably with a two wing. Um, mm-hmm. I actually haven't really explored the, the social type, the subtypes as much,
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: but the perfectionism of the one is, is my primary, um, spiritual work. Yeah. Right. Staying out of that tar baby trap. <laughs>
0: uh huh. Yeah. 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 And I can share some of that inner work with you. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, yeah. So, Oh, go ahead.
1: No, I was going to ask you to just unpack what you said a few minutes uh, or a minute ago about the nine and subtype and all of that, the wings, all of that.
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, a bare bones of the Enneagram is it's a psycho spiritual somatic tool of, of kind of known now as a personality typing system, but it has a much deeper and spiritual roots than that. Um, but yeah, so I sit sort of at the at the top of this nine pointed star, um, with a circle around it. And as the nine, I'm a peacemaker. Um, so the type nine is sort of has this inner motivation to create or maintain some sense of stability or internal and external peacefulness. So making peace with themselves, making peace with the outer world, and sort of um, has this this. compulsive if you will orientation to peacemaking and and the downside of that compulsion is it leads to a lot of avoidance of conflict or difficult situations or tension so we have the the conflict avoidant type and i'm very good at avoiding conflict and really good at reframing we're also in the positive outlook approach group which with the seven the two and the nine um, are all people that will reframe a negative situation and sort of look towards the positive or see, be able to see the positive in it. Um, so I can do that inside of conflict to be like, ah, they didn't mean what they said, or they have the best intentions. And so my inner work, a lot of the time is just stepping up. And a lot of times it's stepping up for my own ego, because um, we can be the like self effacing types. Um, so yeah, the nine, I, I also live with a nine. My partner, Colleen, is a nine.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Um, but it's great. Yeah, we we love each other and we like each other and the peace is there. Um, and I think there's been times where maybe we avoid things here and there, but for the most part, things are well and we can sort of know each other's energy as the nine is connected to the type six and to the type three. We can sort of help feed each other inside of those um when we're sort of in motion, you know?
1: Yeah. Sorry, I'm turning off my ringer. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and I had uh, uh, Chris Hewart's on a previous podcast. I don't know if you're mm-hmm. familiar with his recent book on the Enneagram. And uh, he kind of went through the whole, he did the quickest, most succinct overview of all the nine types I've ever heard. It was mind-blowing. Yes, I think
0: yeah. I, I, listen, I did listen to that a couple months ago. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe within the month.
1: Yeah. But what I like about the enneagram, what's been really helpful for me, is uh, the way you described it, right? The the compulsive emotional core that each typology gravitates towards. Yeah. So for the one, it's trying to be perfect all the time. Mm-hmm. For the nine, it's keeping peace. Every type has a different kind of draw. But there's this understanding that we we move in and out of various levels of health with regard to that. Um, and that our spiritual work is learning to wake up to when we're doing that, when we're getting sucked into our our own inner drama, yeah. and then learning to let go of that and see that there's actually a real gift at the core mm-hmm. of that. But it can that gift can only come if we get out of the compulsion that's around it and the anxiety.
0: Yeah, certainly. That's and that's sort of the work that I like to do with tying Enneagram with contemplative practice. Is sort yeah. of as Thomas Keating would say contemplative prayer is taking a vacation from yourself. And so um, I've been on retreat with William Menninger, another one of the founders of Centering Prayer, and he was leading an Enneagram retreat. And he he would say the same thing, that in contemplation, we're sort of transcending our typology. We're just letting it go. We're always just letting go in a practice like Centering Prayer. And so we're always going back to that kind of bare naked awareness and that sort of self that's underneath the type. So I always ask people like, who is the self that has a personality? You know, who is the I behind the personality? And so to recognize that, that's where we go to when we go into centering prayer or into contemplation is that we're going to the space prior to personality. Um, and to recognize that the personality is a gift. And just right. uh, the, like the, my favorite is, you know, the, the ego is an awful master, but a great servant. Yes. Very cliche, but it's a beautiful thing to say that the personality, as long as it's not dominating us, is a true gift and a tool to be used to help us on our journey. But as soon as it's in the driver's seat of life, then we're the ego is just filling its own needs. And
1: yeah, a particular insight that I've found helpful in that regard recently, I've been listening to a lot of Ramdas uh, mm-hmm. talks. And one of the things that I like that he he doesn't sp- talk specifically about the Enneagram, but he does talk about personality versus the, the kind of inner observer, transcendent mm-hmm. self. But one of the things that I think he's really good about saying is one of the traps in the spiritual life is to think, well, I need to transcend, aka get rid of my personality mm-hmm. so I can get in touch with the divine within. Mm-hmm. And he's really good about saying anytime you go to one extreme, you've sort of lost it. Yeah. But the real human challenge is to live in the world with the personality and all of the memories and quirks that we have while also being aware that we are the divine presence within all of that at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um that's been really helpful for me.
0: Yeah, certainly. Yeah, I I really appreciate that that's really critical for I think people to hear because there is that sort of trapping that the, the ego's bad, the ego's the enemy, thoughts are bad. Like we need to like transcend and just yeah sink into the like universal ocean of being. And yes, we can do that <laughs> <laughs> for 20 minutes, or maybe not even in those 20 minutes. Um, but it's about that integration process of bringing these two worlds together. And that's, that's what I love about Christianity is I feel like it's a very ego affirming religion. It's very mm. like incarnate in the body and fleshed spirit and fleshed. And it's not just spirit. Um, I love like Ed, Advaita Vedanta is another sort of spiritual tradition that I like to spend some time in, and, and that's more of that transcendent, universal awareness um, type of mentality. And mm-hmm. and I do like to balance it with the Christian idea that, yeah, the ego isn't so bad if we if we use it in the right way.
1: Well, if there we are some
0: rather than us using it.
1: Yes, or that's or a good way. A good way of putting it: making use of the ego and the intellect rather than letting it be the servant it was meant to be rather than the master. Mm -hmm. I think there's some really interesting thought occur. Well, maybe thoughts the wrong word, but ways of being around a kind of non-dual Christianity um, that are, that is emerging in some of these dialogues right now. I know Matthew writes pretty good about talking about some of that, but you mentioned Advaita Vedanta, which um, some people might not know what that term means. Can you put it? How would you explain that?
0: I won't be able to do it justice.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. Just in how do you, I mean, how do you understand it? How do you work with that idea?
0: Yeah, well, I, I, yeah, I do see it. It's, it is certainly a non dual tradition, um, sort of born in out of Hinduism, but almost like prior to Hinduism or the more primary texts. Um, And so there's like a couple different streams that, or like lines of thought that I find interesting, but. Let's see. I think part of merging the Enneagram with contemplative practice is sort of founded on an invite to thought that we are ultimately awareness, that if we approach who our essential self is, is we will find that we are only ever awareness at any given moment. And mm. in that sense, we're not the body and we're not our thoughts. We're not our mind. Um, and that that's so like one of the practices from Ramana Maharshi is the n- nutty nutty approach and the, this or self inquiry. Who am I? Who am I? And the nutty nutty is I'm not this, not that, or not this, not that. I'm not my thought. I'm just having a thought. Am I this emotion of sadness? I am sad. I am sad right now. No, sadness is just a passing cloud in the sky. I am the clear, open and receptive sky of awareness. And so, um, that's really important to me, it, it, connecting that with the Enneagram is to recognize that we essentially are awareness. And when we talk about the true self in Christianity, um, I don't think we're talking about the essential self. We're talking about in the true self, we're talking about sort of this ego paired with the divine image within us, which I would say is the awareness.
1: Hmm. Um, so it's a very, in, you have kind of an incarnational non-dualistic approach yeah. to how you integrate that in a, in, within the Christian
0: mm-hmm.
1: language and tradition. Is that a fair way to put it? I don't want to put words in your mouth.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know if I would. Sure. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> to, the ex- to the extent that one can put words to the experience, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, which is uh, always the challenge.
0: Yeah, yeah, I guess I, I just really want to do a, a, a Always a good job integrating different traditions that anyone on their own sort of is less than the holism of reality. And so, non dualism without a, a dualistic awareness is not <laughs> complete unto itself, even
1: um, mm. Mm.
0: From, from my perspective. And so, I, I I, I just want to inca- I want to bring the incarnation into it and Matthew Wright has been very helpful in, in some of his lectures I've I've seen on YouTube um, yeah is pointing to that need to integrate the human and in, in the in the spirit um yeah. and not live into anyone alone
1: cool so something that we've talked about a little bit but you have on your website that I think is a really helpful it's an image and I can even Put the image up in the show notes and certainly a link to your website. But you talk about the contemplative spirituality as this middle way or third way between religious dogmatism and the kind of spiritual woo woo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. So, can you, how do you, how do you use that as a teaching tool?
0: Yeah, well, I think that that's the, I think this is where we, we sort of find ourselves as, I think, young. People coming out of or through the church um, recognizing that we've, <laughs> yeah, um, well, it's sort of a, an acceptance of the fact that religion offers something good, and yet it's not complete unto itself, um, and that people are on a spiritual journey, but they're not being fed by way of institutional religion, whether it's the Christian church or, or a mosque or a traditional Buddhist temple there's obviously a deep hunger for spirituality and yet they're not being fed on the institutional or exoteric level. And so then people swing to the other side and they sort of just find, just absorbing any sort of um, spiritual practice or insight from a mixture of different religious perspectives and just mashing them all together. So it's one thing, but everybody's one thing is very different than everybody's el- everybody else's. So I think people have this authentic drive towards spirituality and if the churches aren't or institutions aren't providing um, spiritual support some people don't like the new age or the the woo-woo like I somehow people believe in everything and yet nothing in a sense
1: right yeah
0: and contemplative spirituality is sort of this middle ground of like accepting some of the religious (laughs) teachings or the value of religion and accepting some of the I don't like accepting the new age or something but um, a lot of the new age or the woo-woo is based on legitimate, uh, religious traditions. Right. And so it's an acceptance of that portion that they've accepted. It's a little muddy.
1: (laughs) No, no, I, that's it. And I think the way I don't necessarily, the way I think about that is the religious, um, I mean, I I'm trained in theology, so I've, I've done like all that, you know, that that part of it um, and that that language, that way of approaching a tradition, um, a theological intellectual system, all of that is a legitimate way of conveying the the um, the truth to which the contemplative experience points, which is ultimately wordless. Mm -hmm. And perhaps the struggle with going far out into the woo-woo world, for lack of a better term, um, is that it can easily sort of reject all of the containers that have historically conveyed those truths. Um, And and I'm not just talking about the Christian tradition. I mean, the Buddhist tradition, the Hindu tradition, the Muslim tradition all have those forms. Mm -hmm. So the contemplative experience kind of breaks open the limited nature of those forms. But it also says those are still necessary. It's almost analogous to what you were saying before. Is like you realize you're not your personality, but you also are never going to get rid of it.
0: Mm-hmm, right. <laughs> so use
1: it. Use it for the good. Use it to find God. Use it to open your heart.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I don't know if that if that's a helpful way of thinking of it for you, but
0: well, yeah, yeah, it certainly is. The containers people just throw out the containers and then they go looking anywhere and and participate in anything and it can in the new age and that can be very very fluffy and so then there's people will reject that and so the other like piece if it's a triangle with like um religious dogmatism woo woo and then spirituality or contemplative spirituality there's almost a i want to turn it into a square at times too and i think of mindfulness um And that can sometimes be like another corner that almost is a rejection of the woo-woo as well and the religious dogmatism in a lot of ways. Um, Mm. Because sometimes the mindfulness movements can be very sterile in a sense, or maybe it's just because it's almost been, it's been extracted out of Buddhism, which is very spiritual and has metaphysics and sort of has its own worldview. And it's extracting out of that. And then it's just putting it inside of like... um, you know, like psychology, which is great. And mindfulness is great. And be mindful and practice mindfulness meditation. <laughs> but for me, it often misses that um, the spiritual perspective that maybe contemplative prayer might include. And so I, I kind of even see it as a box at times where mindfulness does fit inside of contemplative spirituality up into a point, And then it sort of breaks as just a psychological tool. Mm. Um, and there's certainly mindfulness teachers that bring in, Buddhist spiritual teaching, um, but sure. I, I think there's a a, a popular version that excludes that as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I'm 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 a very visual learner, so this is kind of helpful for me to mm. picture those four different points because I think people do find themselves gravitating towards those at different at different times and mm-hmm. feeling something essential that they're getting from those. Yeah. Um, but then the the spiritual depth comes from trying to order that and make sense of it in -hmm. daily life yeah Yeah. so that that might uh, no (laughs) go ahead
0: we need that all of those at different points like i needed the church i grew up in a container that gave me a healthy worldview gave me a healthy relationships with the church with my family gave me structure and a foundation and yet i need to move beyond that and float around a little bit and so i think everybody sort of starts at different points and needs to explore these different buckets and then hopefully find a way that that authentically integrates them together mm-hmm. um, that, that transcendent included not the like blender approach of like just throw it all in a blender and make it all just one big mess um because then that ends up being really fluffy or woo or like everybody has their own different religion or something um but how to authentically integrate them is a holism in themselves
1: yeah so. mm. So I wanted to ask you as well, like, what is, what is your daily practice look like at this point? Do you have yeah. a, is there a rhythm to it? Is there, I, I know, I think centering prayer is, is a foundational to that, but.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's centering prayer every day, every morning, um, is, is, is what I do. And, um, if the goal is the afternoon set, but that doesn't always make it in most days, it does not make it in. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, the the daily um, morning ritual is, I mean, the ritual is coffee, and um, reading, definitely journaling, um, usually reading, meditation. Um, I'm on Insight Timer is the app that I use and connect with meditators all over the world. But yeah, centering prayer every day is sort of the the thing that holds everything together. Is sort of like the thing that that I water my roots every single day in that in that way. So yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, you're on good grounds with the coffee because when I interviewed Richard Rohr, he said the same thing.
0: Uh-huh. Right. Good grounds.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you gotta have coffee to get it to get it going. Yeah. <laughs>
0: uh. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's even fun to see a practice evolve over the years. Um just because It's so simple. We're just letting go. We're letting go. We're letting go. We're doing the same thing. And yet the the effects are always different (laughs) or the, the perspective from which you view that letting go process is always different. When I read Centering Prayer and Inner Awakening by Cynthia Bergeau, I didn't like it at all. And then I came Mm. back to it a year or two later and was like, this is so good. How did I not see this? And then she came out with her other book on the heart of Centering Prayer, which is so good. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and so it's, it, it doesn't, it's not just one thing and it does evolve and, you know.
1: Yeah. So how would you describe that your, how your practice and experience has evolved over time?
0: Well, there's, there's two different things there, I guess. There's like the, the, the bare naked, like direct experience of it. And then there's like how I interpret maybe the experience, you know, how you filter uh, it
1: through your constructed ego yes <laughs> the that? the servant of your mind yeah yeah <laughs> yeah
0: yeah I mean I mean I'm I'm grateful at this point I mean I don't always most sets are you know I get the the random monkey mind the thoughts that swing from you know monkey swinging from branch to branch thought to thought mm-hmm. and so that's that's the norm but there certainly is sort of interior spaciousness that I can sort of um, release into at you know, Keating would call interior silence where there is that legitimate spaciousness or easefulness of letting go and or, or objectless awareness that Cynthia Bergeau talks about is being that bare naked awareness that's there but present of no thing in particular. And so those sort of rhythms come and go is easier to fall into, which is, I think, a great joy and part of that building that muscle of release, that muscle of letting go, that a, a person that's just, starting the practice doesn't have that muscle built up yet. So there's just cloud after cloud of thought is coming through. Um, but the, and, and the other thing I'll, I'll say too, and this is, uh, for Matthew Wright is, um, he encouraged us. I was on retreat with him maybe six months or so ago, and he was encouraging us, uh, to sort of say our our word from the heart. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I still think I'm very much in my head, I'm letting go of thoughts in my head, and he is saying what what does it mean to truly descend the mind into the heart and to let go from the heart level and so that's an experience more like visceral experience of of release from a different space in my body um, so that's something that I'm playing with, but <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, I had a similar experience um Bree Stoner who works for the. Center for Action and Contemplation. When I was with her, she was the first person who really used that language and mm-hmm. talked about allowing the sacred word to emanate from the heart space. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that's been a that for me has been a helpful way of of uh, because like you, I I'm, I tend to intellectualize things, and language tends to get into the rational mind.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it helps for me to have a, almost a vision or a sense a felt sense of that of the word in the heart center sort of resonating in that space in there.
0: Yeah, beautiful. I love that word emanating from the Yeah. Heart. Yeah. 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 That helps. <laughs> yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. So Cool. Yeah. Um so where are you at right now with um kind of the teachings that you're offering and what's a, how you're how you're integrating this into your daily life?
0: Well, my work has totally shifted as far as, um, well, we're dealing with the coronavirus now. (laughs) Yeah, we're both sequestered. Yeah, yeah. this is really the first week of being kind of shut in. And so, yeah, reimagining what it means to bring all of that online. You know, I lead weekly meditation groups or centering prayer groups and lead, you know, make some income at churches leading uh, retreats. Or, or regular groups or go to retreat centers. Um, and and so what does it mean to bring that on? And I'm exploring this week to, um, yeah, just to make virtual meditation groups. So some will be explicitly Christian and contemplative prayer. Others will be uh, maybe more of the mindfulness um, practice of, of breath work and sort of decreasing that anxiety where others will be more about that. What does it mean to be one with God <laughs> hmm. and to wake up to that union? And so, yeah, exploring these di- different days of the week, offering different, um, yeah, different opportunities for people to sort of get grounded. And, you know, we're already slowed down. I used to say, like a week ago, I would say said I'd help people slow down in a busy world, but the world is not so busy anymore.
1: <laughs> it's true. Yeah. You know, no, I, I think, think I've been thinking about that because we're in that first week of kind of total shutdown and mm-hmm. there is an opportunity to slow down and, and, um, take stock. I mean, like we've got our, all of our kids activities are canceled and, mm-hmm. you know, so everything is just on pause. Um, so there's an opportunity to go, to go within and, and to connect with those who are, yep. who are suffering. It's interesting how being ice, iso- this social isolation mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. almost in this moment, at least an act of compassion because you're, Keeping you're preventing yourself from being a carrier of something that maybe won't harm you, but could harm yeah. others.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: there's a lot yeah. of interesting parallels that could be explored there yeah. about <laughs> projecting <laughs> our shadow self onto the world around us.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, well said. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Hmm. Yeah.
0: So it's, yeah, these are, it's wild and weird days, but there's a great effort I see online to just sort of bring some peace of mind. And that's sort of what I'm trying to do. I guess people are so we're just not trained to be alone. We're not trained to practice solitude. We're not trained to be still or silent. And yet this is the context that we find ourselves in. And so, yeah, how to create peace of mind in those contexts to see the value of solitude, to see the value of, of being alone or in stillness. And that's what art, like that's what you and I and people that are in these contemplative streams, uh, we have the tools, we have the resources. And so how to bring those about online and to create real authentic community. Um, is is critical. So it's not just people pr- practicing in isolation at home, but to build community over the interweb, um, across yeah. the ocean, perhaps. So. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I'll definitely put a link to your site in the show notes page mm-hmm. as well for people to to check out.
0: Mm-hmm. Very good.
1: Yeah. So I have a couple of questions that I like to ask people at the end. Maybe you've heard these before, but um, kind of rapid fire, Rorschach block test responses. <laughs> fill in the blank so um, how would you fill this in? Contemplation is
0: Mm -hmm. Um, contemplation is a return to our bare naked awareness and resting in God as the ground of our being
1: the purpose of contemplation is all about
0: waking up to our the reality of our pre-existing union with God and all that is
1: is there a word or a phrase that captures the heart of your contemplative experience
0: say the the emanation of love
1: Hmm.
0: emanating love (laughs) borrowing that word from before
1: yeah cool Do you have a hope for the next generation of contemplative practitioners?
0: Yes, my hope would be that people would find ways, practical ways to integrate this with everyday life life and lifestyle. Mm. The world I don't see is, the world will likely return to somewhat normal pace as before, maybe. (laughs) And it'll be necessary that we were able to um, continue to offer practices in a very practical way for ordinary people. So it's not so mystical, perhaps practical mysticism.
1: Yeah, cool. And then do you have a hope for the future of the Christian tradition in particular and its contemplative dimension?
0: Yeah, I, I think my hope would be to have the contemplative the church contemplative to just open its arms in a loving embrace of all the contemplative traditions that surround it the mm. inner faith and the inner spiritual movement is is critical and and high hopes out of that that we would just embrace all contemplatives of all traditions mm. um, and sing sort of harmoniously the song of divine love that surrounds us and that we are swimming in
1: Hey, thanks again, everybody, for tuning in and listening. I hope you found Keith's story of contemplative transformation inspiring and encouraging for your own journey and practice. If you want to learn more about Keith and visit his website or explore some of the resources that we talked about, you can visit the show notes page at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode 25. While you're there, you can make a free will donation using DonorBox or Patreon buttons on that page. Your support via reviews wherever you stream or download the podcast and any financial help you can provide is greatly appreciated. As I mentioned, our new website at centeringforwisdom.com, which will feature the Centering for Wisdom assessment, keynotes, and workshops, and additional resources will be released with a tentative date of May 1st, 2020. You can visit now or after that date and get a free ebook on how to start practicing Centering for Wisdom, along with a bonus guided meditation at centeringforwisdom.com. All one word, no spaces. We are recording this interview right in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, and there's both a heightened sense of anxiety But also, people have a lot of extra time as we're all sheltering in place and social distancing. I hope that you're finding some inner calm and grounding from your contemplative practice during this challenging time for all of us around the globe. Although it's not what any of us would ever choose or want, the pandemic provides an opportunity, I guess, to deepen our practice and share your grounding energy with others wherever you find yourself. So wherever and whenever you are on this globe, I hope you are well and safe and resting back into the awareness of the present moment, the presence of God, no matter what is happening around you. Peace and thanks again for listening.